It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L. D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Y'all better get ready, folks, because today going to be another doozy. We got truly a living legend here that sits before me, and I'd like to welcome Miss Silva Hydell Morielle to Counter. Happy to be here and to talk to you. And we are very, very happy to, for you to be in our presence and for you to open your home up to us uh, to come here and to do this interview. And I'd like to thank my dear friend and... Uh, Dr. Joyce Marie Jackson <laughs> for making this happen because these ladies are link sisters. They're link sisters, so they yes. Li- so they linked in. <laughs> so we want y'all to tune in today and enjoy this wonderful story. But we want to get you started today. We, you have so much history. We got to get to your book that you wrote. And, and like, what make you at 80s? How old were you wrote that book? 83, 84? You wrote that book? 84, yeah. 84, you know, what made you write a book? So we want to get into all this. Now, you were born in 1930. Uh, 32. Two. Mm-hmm. So you're 90 years old. I'm going to be 90 in November. 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 i got some stories to tell. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it is just, but your mind is just sharp as ever. That's got to be a beautiful thing. I take care of myself. Yeah, we see that. You know, I don't, that. you know, if somebody comes and clean, I cook for myself. I don't have a car anymore because I had a bad accident. Oh, okay. But I know how to manage. I got somebody who takes me, my children, you know, shop for me and all that. They, I have three children that live here. They don't live too far f- from me. You know, two of them live kind of right around the corner. You got to stay sharp. I read a lot. I work crossword puzzles every day to keep my mind from... You, you, you keep busy. You keep your mind occupied. That's right. That's right. I take care, I take care of my business, pay all my bills, you know. So I, I do all that. I take care of my business. Okay, yeah, you handle your business. Then. That's right. So when you when you when you have to do all that, your mind stays sharp. Keep keeps you engaged. Yeah. Now my body's getting raggedy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Since that accident, I got to walk with a cane, but I have a really cool cane. You got a cool cane. You just got a regular cane. You got a cool cane. I got cool cane. Yeah. So you know, so my life is good. I told the doctor last time. My parts are wearing out, but I was in a hospital, uh, and it was at uh, LSU New Hospital, you know, and so they had attending for residents and so forth that came in my room, and they said, oh, we're in the wrong room. I said, well, who are you looking for? They said, well, we're looking for Sybil Morrell. I said, well, that's me. They said, oh, we're looking for an 89-year-old lady. <laughs> you can't be 89 years old. I said to myself, black don't crack. <laughs> Your history goes, you done connected your family history back to slavery. Back to Africa. Back to, all the way back, you went all the way back home. Oh yes. All the, the way back the home. The country and the tribe that yes. my great-great-grandmother Anna came from. Anna? Yes. Okay, now give, give us a little story. Give a little, little story. How, how, did, how did this come about? How did you trace your history back all the way to your tribe and the country? We had put some, some of it together because uh, on my father's side, 
we were an extended family and we would get together on All Saints Day at the graveyard where our ancestors are buried and it, it would be like a family reunion. And where is that at? That's in uh, Vachery, Louisiana. Vachery? Your family from Vachery? That's right. Uh-huh. I got my, it right there. From Wallace, Louisiana, along the river, yes. Well, my best friend is from Vachery. Vachery? He's from, uh, yeah, Vachery, right there in Melosa. Well, his, his <laughs> old folks must know my folks, okay, then if they he, came from there. He's still living there. So now, so you don't, you don't trace your family back to, that's on which side? Uh, my father's side. Your father's side. Mm -hmm. Now give us some history of, of how this came about. So when the family got together, we would, when we were children, we went to Uncle Wicks, who, was, who had a, a, a farm, not a plantation. He had a farm where he grew, <laughs> where he grew rice and sugar cane. And he sold it and you know, made enough to live. He had a nice modern house with indoor plumbing and, and a modern in, kitchen. Indoor plumbing? Yes. He, they had an outhouse too, but he graduated to indoor plumbing. So when we went there, it was, we, we lived nicely. And we had a nice front porch and the house faced the river. Well, first there was the highway, the river road, then the levee, then the bachelor, then the river. But we used to sit on the front porch where we'd get a breeze. And that's when we would talk, that's when I would hear stories about my family. But also, we had a job to do. Uncle Wick grew rice. So after the rice was threshed, it was full of indigo seeds because the farm used to be an indigo farm. Oh, and okay. and it, it wasn't, uh, worth any more, they couldn't sell it. And the indigo crop did not do well, so the indigo seeds were in the soil where they planted the rice. So when the rice was threshed, the indigo seeds were in there. So we sat on the front porch, we had two bowls, one bowl on one knee, one bowl on the other knee. My sister, me, my Aunt Patsy, and Uncle Wick. And what's your sister's name? My sister, Jean, we were just, we were a year apart. We were like twins and we were best friends. So what we had to do was take the indigo seeds out of the rice and put them in another bowl. Now the indigo seeds are indigo, like dark, 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 dark. It's a dye. Yes, mm -hmm. but it's, it's dark, dark, darker than navy blue. So it's easy to see, so you have to pick it out Put it here, because we didn't want it. When we cooked rice, we didn't want it. We'll cook the indigo seeds. <laughs> right. So that was our get together. We would be talk. They would talk, you know, and we would listen. We would, we would pay attention. We were trying to figure things out, and we figured it out that we had to have a slave ancestor. When they talked about Victor, my sister and I said, "I bet he was the slave," because we looked. We looked at how old, when Victor was born, 1835. So y'all was doing, you, you and your sister was figuring that out back we, then? Yes, right. So we said, he was a slave. They never used that word, but we knew. And when we really found out through my, my cousin Belmont doing, we had a reunion and he did some research. 
He looked at church records and he looked at census and so forth. But when Dr. Seck came to help with the Whitney Plantation restoration, that's when we knew Anna was from Senegal and from the Wolof tribe. The Wolof tribe? Yes, we know, yes. And so what happened is um, Victor had seven sons. My father's father was one. My grandfather's name was Clay. All those seven sons had a lot of children. Clay had nine children. So I got, I got cousins galore because they all had a lot of children. So. And were they Haydales too? Haydales? Oh, yes. Oh. That was all brothers. All, you know, the slaves were given the names of the slave owners. Right. That was the Haydale Plantation. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Which is now the Whitney Plantation. Oh, Whitney That's, was Haydale Plantation. Well, yeah. Yes. Because okay. okay. the man who bought it named it after his son. But it was really Highdale Plantation, yes. So all these sons, all first cousins, they stayed in the country. But then a couple of them came to the city and others followed. But Clay, my grandfather, with nine children, six sons, he wanted the children to be educated because after the Emancipation Proclamation, they established schools for ex-slaves up to fifth grade. They wanted them to be literate enough to do their job on the farm. You know, they had to be able to count and, and weigh and measure. Mm -hmm. Fifth grade. So my Clay, my grandfather said, I want my children to be educated. And Clarence, who is the oldest of the six sons, is smart. I'm going to send him to school. But guess what he had to do? There was no more school in the country past fifth grade. <laughs> so he didn't have any blood relatives in New Orleans, dear friends. He sent my father Clarence to stay with the dear friends, finished elementary school in New Orleans, then went to high school in New Orleans, then went to straight college, which became Dillon in New Orleans. And my dad said, I want to be a doctor. And Clay said, okay, I'm going to help you, but you have to promise me that any of your sisters and brothers who want to be educated, you'll do it. And my father said, of course. So he went to Howard University. He couldn't, uh, obviously couldn't go to the medical schools here. Blacks couldn't go to any of the white schools here. So he went to Howard. And this was in the early 1900s. Yeah. Right, this was in the early 1900, uh, maybe between 1910 and 1920. Mm -hmm. So he got his medical degree, he did his residency. At Howard? Yeah, and, and then he came to New Orleans, and then there was a hospital here, which is the key to really treating black people. Black people weren't allowed to use, to, Doctors weren't allowed to use the hospitals here. Maybe charity, but. They, they couldn't see their patient. They couldn't that's even, right. They, they couldn't, couldn't take, even admit their patients. Couldn't admit their patients. So there was Flint Goodrich Hospital. Which name of the world? Flint Goodrich Hospital Flint Goodrich. up on Louisiana Avenue. And 
um, that's where Daddy could do surgery, where he could take his patients, where they were treated in a nice manner. Um, so we knew the promise that Daddy had made to his father about educating his siblings. You know how we knew? Because his youngest brother, Claude, was at Dillard, and he would come to our house every fall and every spring. And he, he was kind of young, so we would talk. He said, you know why I'm here all the time? And we said, no. He said, I came to get my tuition for college. So Your dad is paying my tuition. He, he told us. Oh. Daddy wouldn't have told us. He, you know. Now, where did y'all live at at that time? We lived on Miro Street near St. Bernard in the Seventh Ward. We had a beautiful house, a beautiful garden, uh, flowers, colors all year round. It was a nice neighborhood. It was a very mixed neighborhood, mixed in terms of race and in terms of social and economic status. We had two doctors on one side of the street had really nice homes, and across the street there were several doubles and a couple of private homes, and two blacks had the private homes. They were modest, but in the doubles you had poor whites and poor blacks. So we grew up, you know, our-, our One community. Though. That's right, and our backyard was, was the, the city, that's the playground. You know, and my mother allowed them to come back here. We had a swing and a sliding board and all that and a big place to jump rope and play jacks. And she'd let them come. And on Monday when she cooked red beans, she felt, fed everybody. So that's, where me, that's where red bean Monday come from. That's right, while, while, <laughs> while the, the washes, while you're washing, take all, all day. You know, you gotta wash and starch and hang up. <laughs> so, um, so she would feed them, and they were poor children. And she'd open up the screen door in the back. She said, plates! And then come on inside, get your plate, come in the kitchen, we'll serve your plate. So she fed. And she invited the community to her That's home. right. And we had little picnic tables in the back. So every, all the children on the block would be there on Monday to get Miss Heidel's red beans and rice. Can you cook like and your Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cook like my grandmother. I cook like my mother-in-law. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, you can cook then. Oh, I can cook. Right, I can cook. Right, oh, good old Creole food. Right. Yeah. That good, huh? So that's how I grew up, you know, where our parents had family picnics. Uh, you know, we traveled with my parents because Daddy used to go to national uh, conventions. The National Medical Association was the black doctors. He was uh, the, the medical doctor at Standard Insurance Company. And it, it was like, like today with, you know, HMO. You pay so much a month and you get free, you know, you get free medical service. So his office would be filled up every day. His office was in. So y'all live close to where, where his office was? Mm -hmm. It was about eight blocks, yeah. Now, what, what, where your mom was from? My mother is from here, but her people are from Waveland, Mississippi. Now, I don't know much about my mother's family. You know, we all got secrets. You know, back then, you know, where you had slave fathers and so forth. Well, they wouldn't tell their secrets. We know daddy's secret. We know, you know. My, my, my dad's family felt we needed to know. 
but my mother didn't know because they, they didn't talk about it, you know. Like we would hear our, our cousins just talking, talking, talking. We would go close to eavesdrop, and when we got too close, it'd get quiet. So we knew we wanted to listen to them. <laughs> so that's how we got the stories. Now, did they speak uh, Creole at the time? No, they, no. They never spoke Creole, okay. Then. But my grandmother spoke French. My grandmother and grandfather. On which, now, on which side? My daddy's side, I'm talking, because okay. I know all about my daddy's side. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Now, Dutch's parents spoke French, too. They spoke French because they didn't want the children to know what they were saying, you know. <laughs> and my, my children figured it out. They said, Pepe and Mamé are always talking in, in, uh, in French or in some, some language. They don't want us to know what they're saying. I say, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, but what was it like for you as a child coming up with where you didn't have no rights, no say so? Well, how, how did you? Well, I tell you, like our parents let us know because they said it's going to change. They gave us hope. They said it's in the courts, we're going to win. We used to get black newspapers, Pittsburgh Courier, the Afro-American from Baltimore, and we get all those newspapers so we knew what was bubbling in the federal courts. So we knew change was gonna come. We, we knew it was gonna be a struggle. So we always, we didn't feel like we were gonna be, be like that, it was gonna be like that forever. One re another reason why I, I, I transferred to Boston, I wanted to be free. I wanted to go where I wanted so, to go. So you were more free in Boston with all the white people. <laughs> <laughs> so I went I everywhere. But that, but Boston was all oh the, but, welcoming. But yeah. it, was, it was open for you. Though. Oh yes, could go anywhere. Go to the drugstore and get a sandwich. You know, at the you know, Cats and Bestoff used to have uh, a counter, a food counter, and we couldn't eat in there. You know, the Cats and Bestoff drugstores used to have. A food counter. Okay, how did how did you know about Boston? How you knew Boston was open? Oh, because we had traveled with my father, and they would talk about it. They would talk about the North and the South. Oh, okay. you know, and they would tell us it's not going to be like this. A change is coming. We in the courts. You know, we we we're going to get there. So, and it was always hope. But but it was it was it was a struggle. But at the same time in your mind is you had to keep hope alive. And, and our, our parents reassured us, you as good as you are, if not better than they are. Oh, yeah, don't, don't believe that, what, what they're telling you, you know. you You know from playing with these kids in the neighborhood, these white kids in the neighborhood. They don't have anything on you. You got something on them, you know. <laughs> they got to catch up with you. Right? That's right, exactly. So our but, but, parents reassured us. But maybe that's the greatest fear of them is they know who we are. That's right. They know what we're capable of doing. Exactly. With, with all being equal. That's right. We rise. Oh yes, we do. So, so they have to kill, they have to put extra force to keep us down. Right. Plus, they were in my, the colored people's yard. You didn't, have, colored you, people yard? You, didn't have, you didn't have a yard. You know, you lived in this little house with this little space in the back, you know, we had a yard that had uh, playground equipment, you know, and, and my mother just, she, she oh, knew. So, so the, the white children would come play over there too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
they had a white shirt, they would all play. And but this was my mother's thought. They need to know about us. They need to know you don't have no big yard with no, no equipment. You're welcome here, but you need to know, and we got it, you know. That was her feeling, and it was, a, it was a, a time for us to know that they were not better than we were, these white kids. And it was time for the white kids to know, well, look, these black kids have all this. You know, it was learning on both sides, and my mother knew that. Yeah. So, as I say, we went to, we had family picnics. They had a man who had a swimming pool in Abita Springs, a black man. In Abita Springs? That's right. So we went two, three times in this, every summer to Abita Springs to swim in his pool. Well, that was big time. Oh, yeah. And he said, you're welcome. You're you, welcome. You Come remember, on. You remember his name? Huh? I can't remember his name, but he had a big pool. So they saw to it that we got experiences, you know. Now, all the kids did not have that, but I think all the parents impressed upon them, us black kids, you're just as good as they are. You're probably smarter than them in school, you know. So we got that reassurance from our parents and that love, and yes, you're somebody, and you're going to really be somebody. You know, mm-hmm. so that is what allowed us to carry on. Now, now, now how many children you have? Five. You had five. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. have five children. Yeah. Now you, how did you give us some history of you and you? You were married to the first Creole, who was the mayor of New Orleans, no, Louisiana. All right, I'll tell yeah. you about my husband. He went to Xavier Prep, but he transferred to McDonald Thirty Five in his junior year, graduation from down 35, went to Xavier. I knew, I went to Xavier for two years, freshman and sophomore year. I knew him, I watched him, he was online with Alpha. Oh, you Alpha at that time? I was, yeah, I was, I was paying attention because he was so serious, you know. Okay, but, so you had an eye on him at the time? Not really. Okay, but now you can tell a truth. Little bit. No, a little bit. A little, little bit. bit. A little bit. A yeah, little, little bit. bit. Okay. Yeah. So um, I transferred to Boston University in my junior year. Boston? I, Massachusetts. Boston. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I had traveled a lot with my family and we, we, we met a, a lot of my daddy's friends who were in medical school with him. You know, back then, you couldn't stay in hotels like in Nashville. You had to stay with friends. Now, we had a guest room for that reason. So when Daddy's friends came, you know, they'd stay with us because they couldn't stay in the hotel. Now, well, most, why, why they couldn't stay in the hotel? They were black. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was back in the day where they couldn't stay. Now, Marcellus, that was Marcellus's father, had a motel in Jefferson Parish. So that was a place we could send them in my day, you know. But so we always had... Uh, you know, every now and then we'd have daddy's friends. I remember Dr. Barry and Dr. Jones. Well, no, hold on, now you tell the story about how you and Dutch met, met so I don't want you to... Get away from that, all right. <laughs> okay, so, all right, so I went to Boston University in my junior and senior year, and then I got a job teaching in Newton, Massachusetts, right near Boston University, one of the best school systems in the country. And my advisor at Boston University, 
I, I decided to, I was going to go get a master's degree. She, gave, she was giving me an assistantship, which would pay for my tuition, if I would be her assistant. I went to, to, to a couple of interviews. I said, I don't want no job now, but I want to know what it's like. So when I really want a job, I'll know what to say. So I went to two in interviews, Newton, Massachusetts, and Scarsdale, New York. It's a very rich area in New York, New York State, New York State. There were like 17 people in my class that applied for a job in Newton. They had five, five jobs open. So we all 17 interviewed together. They decided on five of us to have the next interview. I got it. I was offered a job. You was one of the five. Yeah, so I went to my advisor who I was gonna, you know, go to school the following year on, on a scholarship to, to be her assistant. And I told her I was offered a job, but I, she said, Sybil, you need to think about this. All these graduates were dying to teach there. That is one of the best in the country, I want you to know, so think about it. So I decided, she said, secondly, I don't think they have any black teachers teaching in the whole district. She said, think about it. So I decided to do it. And they assigned me to a school, all white. Even the janitor was white. <laughs> at least the janitor's gonna be one of us, huh? Exactly. So some of the parents were leery, you know, went to the principal, does she have the slow class? Principal said, no, she does not have the slow class. We don't divide our students like that. But you are lucky your child is in her class because she is one. She is the best in this school. So there was another couple of other parents. They invite me to their house to lunch. They wanted their child to be in my class because they knew I was the best, but they wanted them to have to know a black person. And so, you know, one little girl had curly hair and I had a poodle back then. That was there, I don't know what a poodle is. A poodle is, you know, yeah, all curly. Okay, yeah. okay. Poodle hair, like a, like a poodle dog. <laughs> little girl said, well, I have hair like Miss Idell. I have beautiful hair like her. So you, you never know what these kids are thinking what about. Thinking. You know, they're not, struck by racism or anything. I, you're a good teacher, I like you. You make me feel good, you, you know. What, what grade did, did you First teach? grade. First grade. They loved me. And, you know, it was just such a wonderful experience. Like I said, I was the only black in the school. How long did you, did you teach in Boston? Three years till I got tenure. I got tenure. Then I decided uh, to come back home because I had met Dutch Morial. <laughs> <laughs> I came home uh, one summer after you know school ended for that year, and we had we had established a, a book club. We couldn't join the book club at the library because there didn't want no black people in the library. The only library we could use was on Drive Street. You couldn't put your foot in the downtown or none of the others. There was one on Drive Street. And then later they had New Renavra in Seventh Ward. Mm -hmm. Right here in New Orleans. Yeah, right. So, um, so we established our own book club. Some of us, like ten of us, and we could pick our own book. 
Well, that night when I came home for the summer, I called my friend. I said, Lydia, what's up? What's on the social scene? <laughs> she said, well, we have our book club meeting tonight at my house. You need to come. I said, well, what book? I, I haven't read the book. She said, it's W.E.B. Du Bois's book, The Soul of a Black Folk. Oh, yes. Lord, I said, I will be there. So had you had you read that book I, already? No, but I knew of it. I knew sort of the context of it. I had read it like I was getting ready for that. So y'all yeah. was reading W. E. Du Bois. Oh yes, that's right. Oh. Mm -hmm. So you know we had our little discussion, and after we have a little social, you know, might have a little sandwiches or some cake or something. And so I was late leaving because I was trying to catch up with my friends. You know, I, I lingered after, and so did Dutch. So when, oh, he was part of the book club. He was, no, he was just a guest. Mm -hmm. okay. So he was walking out. When I was walking out, he said, this conversation isn't finished. I'm going to see you tomorrow night if you let me come. <laughs> oh, you made a move while you did? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> he made the move. I said, okay. Oh, he said, okay, no big deal. Okay. Well, he wanted to talk about it because I was interested. You know, it was after the Supreme Court decision, and we knew what was coming, and he was practicing law with A.P. Truro. So, him and A.P. So we wanted to talk about what was going on. So he came to my house every night. So we talking about that case? Talking about, you know, what, what, what would have to come, you know, they'd have to go in the courts in local places, you know. The Supreme Court decision did not mandate change. It mandated. But you got to bring it in line with, with the national. Yeah. Okay. So that meant that Turo was going to have to look at the law and see what we can do to strike it down. So they was they were still young men just getting out of college, getting out of law school. Out of law school, and they was already getting ready, challenge, ready to challenge oh, the system. Oh yes. So they went to they went there to come back and challenge oh, the system. Oh yes, absolutely, oh. absolutely. So so he was in the office with Turo. Uh, Mr. Turo invited him to come in just to do office space, not to act as a firm, because we, we couldn't do that back then. You know, we, we didn't have any big corporate uh, people that we worked for. But just being with Turo and what he was doing, he was, he was the, the dean of black lawyers back then. And so when the Legal Defense and Education Fund of the NAACP knew they had to come to every southern state to see how they could bring them in line with the national mandate from the Supreme Court. So Thurgood Marshall, and he brought Constance Baker Motley, and so Bob you, you met Thurgood Marshall? Oh, Thurgood Marshall came to my house. What? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. He, so he, they, came to, they came down to work with Turo and Dutch, and Trudeau, who was in the office, to strategize to see how we're going to bring Louisiana in line. And of course, AP knew all of state law. And so they met at AP's office every day. They were down here for like 10 days. How are we going to do this? What's the state law? What else do we have to, you know, That's change? Make it history. No. Make it history. No. So here's Dutch, 24 years old, with these legal giants. He yeah. had no clue where huh? he was sitting, where he was sitting there. Huh? No, he didn't know how significant that was. 
And so he, that Dutch was smart, and he spoke his mind. So he was strategizing with them, telling them, telling them what he, he thought. And so one day, Dutch said, well, I'm going down, we, we're going down to uh, Dookie Chase for lunch. Oh, Dookie Chase was open in? Oh, yeah. They had the gold room in the front, yeah. Oh, Dookie Chase been there since oh. the 40s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So he said, so his office was in the Claver Building, which is about three blocks away from Dookie's. So he didn't have a car, so he'd walk down there and I would meet him there. So that's where we courted at first, you know. <laughs> so Leah Chase was in the kitchen back then. Back then you could oh. see her in the kitchen. She, she did like this with me and Dutch. Oh yeah. Hold on to this So, you know, we dated all that summer. And I think we fell madly in love. Oh, that's but, a good story. But then in November, he was drafted into the army. And he was so sad and mad. What war was that? Korean war. Korean war, okay. Yeah, he was so mad because it had interrupted his. He getting ready to go fight this system. Oh, yes. Now he had to go fight for the system. That's right. <laughs> so he, he had to go. He wrote, he wrote Congressman who was F. Edward A. Bear, who just totally ignored his letter. I don't know how, why Dutch thought he could, he could get out of the draft, you know. You drafted, you gotta go. So I came home for Thanksgiving, that's when they were taking him. I went with him to the airport and they shipped him off to uh, South Carolina for boot camp. So I didn't see him until Way the next Christmas, I came home. A, a year later? Mm -hmm. I came home and um, he said, he was in Army Intelligence in the spy section because th things were stirring up in Vietnam right near. And he said, all of the last class in the intelligence school was sent to Vietnam. I bet they're gonna send us. I don't want to go to Vietnam. I'm not going to leave you here. You up in Boston with all those Harvard men. <laughs> we, we're going to get married. <laughs> so we did. We married in Boston in oh. February. Oh, so he, he came to Boston. That's right. Because he didn't have time. We didn't have time to come down and plan a wedding and all that. You know, he just wasn't going to leave me here for somebody else to grab me up. That's what he told me. <laughs> he said, you live right down the street from Harvard. <laughs> so you got, you got to put his, put his feet in the ground over here. Right, so we married, and he did not have to go to Korea or to Vietnam. He was, staged, he was assigned to Baltimore, to the, uh, to the Army Intelligence, well, Army, to do Army Intelligence what, work there. What, right around the Pentagon over there? No, no, it was, uh, it was Fort Hollibird in Baltimore. Okay, then. In Baltimore. That's where the intelligence, and, and, and because he had been trained during his boot camp, they wanted him to be there to prepare him to go to Vietnam and find out, to go to, you know, over to the area to find out what was going on. But they, they trained him to fight against them, really. Oh, That's yeah, yeah. So he got some good He got some good training, training. yeah. So we married in Boston, my mm. parents and my, Sister and brother came up, had a nice little wedding. How, how old were you? Oh, I was working. I was 22 years old. Okay. I, I, I was taking care of myself, you know. I, <laughs> I wasn't no little silly girl. 
You know what I needed a husband? I could take care of myself. Oh, no, (laughs) don't take it out on me. I'm just asking. That's right. No, (laughs) I just want you to know that I wasn't looking for a man to take care of me. Oh, you told me. I heard you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyhow, so so I moved to Boston. I mean, I moved to Baltimore. All right, with your husband. With my husband. I taught in Baltimore. Now, when I taught in Baltimore, that was the second year after the emancipation, after the uh, Supreme Court decision. So they had integrated the students the year before I got there in the schools. The schools that were all white, the black kids who lived in the neighborhood went to it. So the schools were integrated, but not the faculty. So the year I went, they integrated the faculty. They picked the best black teachers to go. Five of us in a school where they had 30 teachers. And I could look at those black teachers and say they were superior. You know, we just, we were just good teachers. That's how we rule. That's right. Mm-hmm. So I taught these little children. And one time, a little boy said, well, well, well if you call it, how come your, wife, your, your husband got white skin? <laughs> I said, well, we come in all colors, honey. <laughs> <laughs> he was so cute, little white boy. His name was Dadro. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. That's pretty good. Uh-huh. So, so we, we taught there. I taught there, and uh, he, he finished his term. He, they didn't send him to Vietnam, and he had served what he needed to serve with the draft. So you all stayed in Baltimore for about two, three years? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then we came home. Now, did you, you had your first child in Baltimore? No. Here, okay. yeah, okay. had first child here. We were in Baltimore for two and a half years and came here. And a year after we were here, I had the first child. Now, now who's the, who's the, who's your elder? Uh, Julie, Julie's a physician. Okay. Mark is just a year younger, he's second. Okay. And Jacques is three years later. Then Cherie is five years later and Monique is three years later, so they, they, they spread out, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we lived in Pontchartrain Park. We, there was a, a man who had bought the house, but his wife wanted to go back to her home to live. I mean, he, after he went to all that trouble, she didn't want to live there, so he rented it to us, and shortly after, we bought a house in Pontchartrain Park when my children were little. Mm-hmm. That, that was upscale for, uh, for us back then. Oh, yeah. The best place to raise children because everybody looked out for everybody's child. You know, it, they had children everywhere. Mark said he could make a football team just on our block. You know, he said he got enough kids that he could have a football team. Two sides. Oh, two sides. <laughs> yeah, huh? right. But they loved living there. Now, they went to the uh, integrated school, Catholic school, which was in Gentilly Woods, which is where the white people lived. And they had a ditch that divided Gentilly Woods, which was the white neighborhood, and Pontchartrain Park, which was the black neighborhood. Now I mention it because my son Mark has written a book and he talks about the ditch that divided ditch. the white neighborhood from the black neighborhood. He said every day, they had to run home because the older white boys would chase them. So when they would get home, you know, they were in integrated school, I said, well, how did things go today? Oh, good, they went fine. They didn't tell us until oh, way years later. I said, well, why didn't you tell us? Well, mama, we handled it. 
<laughs> he had Jack. But mm -hmm. in his book, he says how his heart would race when it was time for school to end. Like he said, by quarter to three, I'd be all nervous about what I was going to have, how fast I was going to have to run <laughs> so those white boys wouldn't get me. He said, once I got on the other side of the ditch, I was safe. Uh -huh. So he refers to that ditch as the separation, a you know. Ditch. And he said, it was always a ditch in my life when I was practicing law and all that. Yeah, it's, it's a, it, was, it was nice. But they grew up in Pontius Train Park, went to the integrated Catholic school because there was no Catholic school in Pontius Train Park. But it, it was well integrated. There were enough black kids there. Mm -hmm. But they, they, they didn't welcome them, you know, with open arms. They did what they had to do as Christians, you know, we, we, you got. But my children survived it. It made them tough and smart, how to navigate this society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, now, what, whatever happened with, with that case, I want you to talk about that case with your husband, A.P. Turo, and uh, Thurgood Marshall, what happened with that case? They figured it out. And in 1961, the judge, the federal judge, mandated that the public schools in New Orleans, Louisiana, have to be integrated by September. Now, the U.S. Marshals, where you know, you know the story about those five little girls mm -hmm. that went to in, in the lower ninth ward at um, McDonough 19 in French School, and they had to be escorted by U.S. Marshals to protect them because they had mothers out there screaming at them, two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate. Y'all go back where y'all came from. Well, I thought to myself, you brought us here. You should have left us where we were. You brought us here. Now you're stuck. <laughs> so, so you see in any, any uh, uh, movie clips where these little girls had these marshals dressed in suits, escorting them like, you know, that's, that's the one, the Ruby, Ruby, that's the one, the Ruby. Yeah, Ruby Bridges. Ruby, Ruby yeah. Bridges, okay then. Right. Okay. So, so this city did not integrate easily. They fought it, you know, so it was, so it's, it was several years but, before other schools integrated. But we always, we had to always remember that we we still in the deep south. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I I, I know your son Mark. I've been knowing Mark for quite some time, and uh, Cherie mm -hmm. and Verge. Yeah, they're Verge, in Baton Rouge. Yeah. yeah, and a uh, matter of fact, uh, Doc taught Verge mm -hmm. at, at LSU. Uh -huh. So, uh, but they're. You know, they're, they're good people, and your, your grandson just got a scholarship. Oh, wonderful, yeah, one of them is at, at Auburn, and the other one, they just announced where he's going, and I, I don't know, I'm gonna call him. They announced it? He, uh, yesterday they announced oh, I it. I missed it, I'm I, miss, I, missed I missed it, it too. It. I didn't know. So I'm gonna tell my, I'm, I'm sure my, my grandson, this is Julie's son that's with me now, because she joined her daughter in Paris, who was doing a summer abroad, and so she joined her, after the summer abroad ended and they're spending a week together in Paris, they go into a fashion house and you know, they go into, That's she, great. they have a nice memory together. Right, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's here with me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. So they're doing with their children what you've done with them. Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty of that. Yeah, right. That's what, yeah, that's what you do for your children, you make it better right. than it was for you. Now, at 84 years old, you decided 
to write this. The, the, the origin of this book came after Katrina. My house flooded, only 10 inches, but it stayed in three weeks. So the mole crawled up the walls, got in all the furniture. It was horrible and unhealthy here. So I had evacuated. In the same house? Yes, this house. So I evacuated Baton Rouge with Cherie and Verge. Seven of us and a dog, a big dog, landed at Cherie and Verge's house. And they have a big house. They had room for all of them. But they didn't expect a dog. Verge don't do good with dogs. Not that big dog. So she, she, she did what she, you know, she, they have a covered spare pa patio. And she would, you know, take the dog out there. She'd walk it every day. You know, it wasn't, the dog wasn't roaming around the house. She knew better, you know. So. Whose dog was it? It was Monique's dog. Okay, yeah, big, beautiful chocolate lab. So in the meantime, not only did my house flood, but I had a fire. Yes. You had a fire? A fire. I had a contractor who was supposed to be restoring it. I did not know the man was a crook. He was a crook to me. He hired people. They were here installing a new air conditioner upstairs. The man smoked. He probably threw a cigarette. It smoldered until a flame caught. The flood took downstairs. The fire took upstairs. So here I am, no house, everything gone, furniture gone memorabilia, photographs, and all the dead oh, you things. lost, you didn't yeah. lose, you lose. didn't lose all that. Uh, yes, I had no photographs. That was the fire took that. The fire took upstairs, the flood took downstairs, and the, they had told me, don't try to salvage anything upholstered. It's probably full of mold and mildew. You will have an unhealthy house with this furniture. Put it out from the carrier away. Be better if you get a bench to be in your living room and be healthy and safe. So I had to decide whether, whether I was going to come back or do something else. Well, I was going to come back. My memories are here. You know, this is where I raised my children. So my house was paid for. I didn't have a mortgage. I got insurance. I got road home. I had some other investments that I had to put it all back together and still had to get a mortgage. But I wanted to be here. But guess what? I didn't put walls. There was a wall there. There was a wall there. Every, every room was in, individual unto itself. I liked this open style. Oh, it wasn't open. Yet. All the way back. So we live everywhere. I don't have a breakfast nook. We eat there. You know? I restored my house. I finally got a good contractor, the contractor who restored Xavier University in enough time for that school to open up within a year. Good, honest man. And so you, you got taken. Yeah, I got taken. I was, so I was driving in two times a week to check to be sure things were going all right because I didn't want them to put something up and that's not in the plan, you put something up, them got to take it down. You know what you wanted. That's you? right. So I came twice a week, and I, you know, this little lady. Well, they didn't mess with this little lady because I was watching. 
So you was on high security. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't raise a whole lot of help, but they knew I was watching, you know, but the man was honest. He was, you know, giving me a good price. I knew that he had a man supervising. He was the only one who had the key. No work, workers came here unless he was here. Like that other man, oh, the key's in the side yard where the garbage can is. That's what the man who messed up, you know. Was it what his name was? You gonna call him out? No, I don't want to call you him. You put him on blast. No. I took him to court. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta go to court records. You go to court right. records, you'll pull him up. There. Right, right. So I, this wonderful uh, uh, contractor restored my house beautifully. It, was, it really is a beautiful place. It was. He was honest. You know, he he was just wonderful. I said, that's the difference. This one's a crook, and this man is a Christian and a professional and he helped to restore it. So, so I had to refurnish, you know, a little bit at a time. Right. You know, like one year I did the bedrooms. Because my grandchildren would come over, yeah, well, can you come to Grammy's house? I want you to spend time with me, That's you know? Cute. So they would come, stay, spend a week, a couple of weeks, yeah. How, mm -hmm. how many grandchildren you have? Just seven. Just seven? Just seven. I got five children. I have two that Mark, Mark have married. Mark has two. Mark has two. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, three. He has three. Wait, and his you? oldest daughter just had a baby, so he's a grandfather now. Oh, okay. And I'm a great-grandmother, yeah. Uh -huh. right. right. So um, so I came back. Um, fortunately, I had worked long enough at Xavier. I had a good pension, and I had put into Social Security. So I had an income enough to live here. Didn't have to depend on my children, you know. Um, so I make do, I do for myself, you know. Still do it for yourself. That's right. The same thing happened when you met your husband. I'll That's take right. care of myself. I, I can take care of myself, yeah. <laughs> you still got that attitude. Huh? Yeah, right. And he knew that and he, he appreciated that. You know, that I wasn't looking for somebody to take care of me. But you know, what made, Dutch Moria, who everybody you know, fictionally called by, called them, such a great mayor. Oh, he was the first, but what made him such a great man? People had some respect for him. Dutch Morial was smart. He was born with a good brain. Dutch Morial spoke his mind. He wasn't afraid to stand up to anybody. He would do it in the right way, but they had to back off because number one, he was smart, but number two, he was sure of himself, you know. I'll give you an example of, Ma of Mark. You know, Mark is on CNN all the time. <laughs> and so just recently when, um, when they were rolling back the voter, voter rights, you know, Mark stood and looked right in the camera, he said, it's nothing but apartheid. You know what apartheid is in South Africa? That's when they oppressed the Africans. They were there before the white people came. That was their land. Totally just like it was. And white people, you know, backed up, yeah. Mm -mm. And so Mark was, just, Mark was just like that. He was polished. Now Mark was polished. He went, they, he went off to school. He went to University of Pennsylvania. He went to Georgetown Law School. You know, so he knew how to handle himself because he was around his daddy who was quite outspoken. Uh, he went with his daddy during the civil rights era when Dutch was president of NACP. He'd go to all the black churches with him when he spoke. 
Mark learned at his daddy's knee and at the dinner table. Yes. So, so he looked up to him. Mark's, his Mark's supposed to be good because he number one he's smart, but uh, he he was trained by his daddy. And he was not just that; he was around all these other leaders. That's right. Great men and right. women of the That's community. Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, even the mo look at you, the mom. You got a strong mother. <laughs> yeah. You, you ain't much different. <laughs> you a fighter too. Well, you know, and and you really don't have to preach to your children because they see you, what you do. You mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm a little more polished and ladylike, but they know I don't, <laughs> don't mess with me, <laughs> you know. Oh no, sir! Oh no, sir! It's not like that. <laughs> but plus, being who we are, we had to have. We grew up in a very uncomfortable environment that mm. didn't never welcome us. Mm. So you had to. Learn, we learned to survive and live in that exactly. situation. And after a while, like you get tired of it. Well, That's oh, right. I'm, 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 yeah. in, I'm just as good as you. I can. Right. I and you want to be able. And you want to be able to do something about it. You're not gonna stand back and criticize. Oh, you know they need to stop doing that. Well, what do you do for America? You, you get you you get the laws that's gonna be equal. You vote for the people that's gonna be advocates for us. You know you vote for the mayor for the council, for the governor, for the state legislator, you know, that's, that's the sports you gotta take on, you know. Mm -hmm. So talking about first, Dutch was the first black to graduate from LSU Law School. That's right. First black to be elected to the Louisiana state legislature, the first representative. The first black on a juvenile court here. The first black, he was appointed by Governor McKithen, because Governor McKithen, you know, Dutch had a good relationship because they were both smart. And so he said, Governor, you need to, why don't you appoint a black judge? That'll be good for you to do. So Dutch said, okay. So he said, well, you know, you can be that. He said, no, we're gonna do that for somebody else. Save me for later. So he, he, so he said, well, Dutch, who do you suggest? He said, Israel Augustine. He's practiced law for a long time here. He's respected. So McKithen appointed him to the criminal court here in New Orleans. Then two years later, he appointed Dutch to the juvenile court here. He, uh, somebody retired. So he had the, you know, the power to appoint. So he was, on the, he was first black on the juvenile court. Then he ran for the state court of appeal first black on the State Court of Appeal, then first black mayor. And when Dutch ran for mayor, our own people said, well, you can't win, this, this is a majority white community. Dutch said, yes, I can. He said, I have white friends, I have white people I've worked with during the civil rights era. We had some white people on our side, but I think I'm as qualified or better qualified for any of the white candidates who are running. So he, he, he said that, and he was right. So there were some black groups, political groups, who had supported some of these white people in their other political positions, you know. They said, you're not gonna get all the black vote because we got friends. They said, I'll go to the black people myself. I know my people. I don't need no political organization to, to endorse me. I don't have to, it'd be nice if I could get it, but I'm gonna go to the people. 
They know me. I've been, you, you know, you've seen me, you know. So he went to the people. He got 94% of the black vote. The first time around? Yes. And he got 12% of the white vote. Yes. Some of the black organizations, you know, they, they did not prevail. Dutch went to the people. And I guess they said, well, I trust a black man well enough to trust a white man. So they either. voted for him, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he became, one, became the, one of the best mayor to hold that That's right, smart, cared about the people, knew what to do to get things even and equal. You know, he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't just a big mouth. Oh. You know, <laughs> there was some substance behind what he said. Okay, now, you, you've been the first lady of all this that took place. That's right. But you're the first lady of the mayor position, the state representative, all those. But you know what? Before I met Dutch Murray, I was doing stuff. I, I founded an organization, the Louisiana League of Good Government, and we did voter registration. Now, there were organizations like the NAACP and all of them did voter registration, but it was at a time that was not convenient for me and my friends. We had little children. You know, and we couldn't go meet, so we were meeting at each other's houses and we'd bring the children, you know. So I was the president, I guess for 30 years of that organization. What was the name of it? Louisiana League of Good Government, LOG, L-L-O-G-G. Oh, right. And we would go to, we would go to the churches, that's the, we always welcome into black churches, and tell the pastor, tell your people, one of my people, one of my people gonna be here, to tell you what you need to do to get to be a registered voter. But guess what you had to do? Pass a literacy test, pass a citizenship test, proof of where you live. Now, if they weren't told what kind of proof, you know, like a utility bill, a water bill, you know, that would establish this is where I live, this is the address uh, I'm putting down. Um, they would go there and and those deputy registrars would treat them ugly. You know, they'd go through the literacy tests, I'll tell you what they had to do. And, and you, you don't know how to read, you're not a read. You don't need to be a registered voter. That's how they talked to us, you know? So you had to be strong to take that. Cause I know some of those black people felt like <laughs> slapping them. <laughs> you know, but we, but we told them, if they get rough with you, so so y'all had to prep them for We for prepped this. them and they were ready. Just, just to go vote. Just to go get a, become a voter. Now for a literacy test, they had to read the preamble to the Constitution, which is, uh, you have to read. We the people? Yeah. Inalienable rights. Well, that's a long word <laughs> with four, five syllables. <laughs> so I would have to pause first before I could say it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so we taught them, we made them say it three or four times. This is an easy word if you sign out every vowel. You know, but some of them weren't that well educated, but we prepped them. Say it, say it again, say it again. Yes. So that be, be, you being a teacher, that helped you. That's right. Okay. So we told them what, what uh, identification, of course they didn't have a driver's license because they didn't have a car. You know, these were poor people. It was people living the project, you know. We were in the second ward. I was in. I was. T I took the second ward. But you know, they would go like like one of them had went to a church in the seventh ward. 
So every week we had somebody coming and we helped them. Now, the next week we come and some of them come back, I'm a registered voter. Some of them would come in tears. So, so that was a major accomplishment. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it. You're gonna make it, you're gonna go back, we're gonna prep you some more. And they would stick with it, you know, to come every Tuesday, I would go to, to uh, Gus Holmes, the high rise for the senior citizens. That was the first, first public uh, apartment for black senior citizens. And they all would say, I've been wanting to vote. Been wanting to vote. Yeah, I want to be a registered voter. And they'd come down in the meeting room. I mean, like every time I'd have like 20 people. Mm. So that's what my organization did. Another thing we did, we'd have meet the candidates and we'd invite the people who were running to come and talk to us. So the first big one we had was at a union hall, because they didn't have no place we could go that was big enough. But the union hall, the, of uh, Longshoreman's Union Hall used to say, y'all come on, yeah, y'all can meet here, we ain't gonna charge you. So Moon Landrew was running that. That was, you know, shortly before Dutch, he, Dutch was in the legislature. So it was a big election where the mayor, the city council, and all the parochial offices, you know, they had like about 50 people running. So we got the union hall, we paid a low, we had to pay for insurance and we had to pay for the janitor to clean up. They didn't charge us no rent. We begged for food, you know. <laughs> so we had a big crowd. Well, before that, I said, Lord, suppose none of the people running are gonna come. When they find just a bunch of black women. I called Moon, because I knew, you know, Moon and Dutch were friendly. Moon was kind of a liberal back in that day. I said, Moon, my group has planned this. I, I suppose nobody come. He said, I'll tell you what, they might not, but I'll be there. <laughs> so we said, okay, let's do it. I said, well, pass the word around. This, this is an influential group and they need to be here. So we had a crowd. And we asked them questions like, you're gonna appoint people to, black people to these positions? You're gonna appoint women? to this, I mean, hard question. Well, on their feet, you know, they didn't so expect Y'all cut them off, go. That's right. So that's what my organization did. So that's what, you know, I brought to Dutch Boreal when he ran. I had, oh, you know, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. So you, you was already moving and shaking. That's right, in my own little way, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Um, when he got ready to run for, get involved in politics, you gave him any, any kickback or what you Oh, no, no. Yeah, we, this is what we got to do. You got to do this. We got to do this. Yeah, you uh, smart. You know, you, you prepared. You knew your husband could have That's right. You, you went to school with him. You, know, you went to law school with him. You know how they operate. You know them. That's what Mark says. I went to school with those white guys. <laughs> I know how they think. And I could outthink them, you know. Uh, so if you with them on an, even, on an equal level, you learn how they think. And you, yeah, that's why they want us at the table with them. You know? That's right, yeah. They want, want us to figure them out. So I always supported, because I knew Dutch was capable, and I knew he was strong and would stand up for what was right and stand up for black people. So I had to be with him. You know, it was kind of hard, you know, because he was gone all the time. You know, he was at, on Sunday morning, we went to like five and six churches to talk to the people. This is important. We got to win this seat, you know. 
I'll be your mouthpiece. You don't have to wonder where, where I stand. You know where I stand. I ain't got no black skin, but I'm black down to the last bone. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's what you would tell her? Yeah, right. Now, now where was Dutch from? Dutch was from uh, the fringe of the Seventh Ward, up North Claiborne Avenue, almost to Elysian Fields. He was on Vilver Street. That's, that's where, where he lived. Where his family? They were from the city, but I don't know what part of the city they oh, lived in. Maybe. His father worked in a cigar factory. You know, we had to get jobs like that. His mother was a tailor. She worked for uh, a man who sold men's clothes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were hard workers, but they were limited. You know, that was minimum wage. Back then, you didn't get no pension. You know, you might have had to put in Social Security if you worked for a big company. But they they did all right. I mean, they, they, they were just making ends meet. I mean, but that's a lot to say at a time. Matter of fact, you was born in 1932, the year of the Great Depression. That's right. So, but, we, so that, was, that was not much flowing around. For, no. It was already tough and hard for, for the But I'll tell you why it wasn't hard for me. I mean, we knew that these, you know, people would ring your doorbell because they were hungry. So my mama would feed them. She, you know, she said, come on a Monday. I cook red beans. I cook a big pot, pot big enough to take a bath in. <laughs> so she'd feed them in, in, in the backyard, you know. Uh, they would ring the doorbell and they say, ma'am, I'm so hungry, I haven't eaten. I, I didn't have nothing to eat yesterday or today. She said, okay, well, I'm gonna unlock the gate and come in the backyard and I'll bring up a plate of beans. So. So she fed the multitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what you did. But my father was a physician, so gas was rationed then, yeah. But because he was a physician and made house calls, he could get gas, you know. And we, I remember we used to go to get the uh, uh, ration stamps up at Hoffman School. You know, you had to go collect your so you could buy certain so, things. So I remember we used to go. So we, that, we used to go up to Hoffman School. They would take us because they wanted us to see what it was like, you know. And so my daddy was making enough money so he could provide food for his family. But the important thing was to give him gas for his car so he could do his house calls. That's when doctors did house calls. My father did surgery in the morning. He did house calls from 11 to three, he came home to eat around 12.30. Then he went to his office from four and sometimes till 10 o'clock at night. But that was the insurance people, you know, that was like uh, uh, an insurance plan. You pay like, you know, 50 cents a month and you got free medical services. My father was a good man, you know. He, he could have made money with, peop- with people who made money, who could pay him. But the insurance, comp- the insurance company paid him so much for seeing the... Now, the now back then, would y'all go, y'all was doing Mardi Gras at that time? Mm-hmm. Would y'all go to like Donaldsonville for no, Mardi Gras? No, y'all we, done that? no, we went here. And you know, North Claiborne Avenue is where the black folks hung out. You know, <laughs> that's where the Indians were. That's where the baby dolls were. You oh, know, you, you and the baby doll, huh? were you? No, no, we just watched them. You know, <laughs> my father's office was on 
Claiborne Avenue and North Claiborne Avenue. So we could go to the bathroom there, you know, y'all can't, can't go to the bathroom. But then later, my mother and all their friends, the extended family, you know, all her good friends like Andrew Young's mama and daddy, yeah. We all got together and at the Claver building, in the big meeting hall, they'd bring food, you know. They had a stove back there, but they'd bring red beans and potato salad and ribs and all that kind of stuff. So we would spend the day there. The bathroom was there, but we could go to North Claiborne Avenue because the Indians would come at Claiborne and so, Orleans. So the Indian was big you back see, then. That's right. We would go see the Indians. <laughs> or we'd go down by Daddy's office and see the baby dolls. You know, and they'd go, T na na. I remember. <laughs> so we, we had it all. Now we couldn't go. They didn't want you on Canal Street. They didn't want no black people. I was going to say, y'all couldn't go on Canal Street. Oh, and not on St. Charles Avenue. Now, sometimes we, we went up on St. Charles Avenue, you know, the, the rich part with the neutral ground. And they had a few black people that would come, but we were always. But y'all had so much fun where you were at, though, with the, yeah, watch the, the we, Indian and the Black right. Indian. But we wanted to see the big parades. We oh, wanted right, to see right, Rex right. and all that. Now, was and, Zulu going Oh, on? Zulu was on, South, on North Claiborne. He'd come right by my daddy's office. Yeah, okay. so we'd, we'd see the Indians, the Zulus, the baby dolls on North Claiborne Avenue. That, that was big, didn't That it? was big. That was big. <laughs> that, that was showtime. And we knew some of the people who were in the Zulu club back then. They were on the floor, you know. So, were y'all part of Zulus then? No, no, not part of it, no. But, but they knew my husband. They knew my daddy, you know. I know about my people. I'm proud of them. I'll tell you why I'm proud of my grandfather, Clay, who sent my father to school, who sent four of his siblings to school, to college. Three teachers and my uncle, who was a chemistry major, but he used to make hair products for black hair. Why Lord? Uh, so he did well. He, you know, he, he crafted it himself and, and he, his brother, my Uncle John, would go to the stores with a box and, you know, and say, you know, this is a black neighborhood. These women are going to want this, these hair products. So that's how he got it, his stuff out there, you know. He went to all the black neighborhoods, to, to the little, you know, the little mom and pop stores. You, you, name it, you know the name of the product was? Wylon. Wylon, you're not old enough, y'all yeah. not old enough to know. It was Wylon, but it was grease, you know, you put, for, for black women to be able to straighten their hair, you had to put some grease in it, yeah, so you wouldn't burn. So he was successful, you know, he, was, he, he, he manufactured it himself. He had a place on South Claiborne Avenue, on South Rampart in the 600 block, I remember, yeah. So I saw a lot of progress in my lifetime, you know. I mean, just think about it from this perspective. You almost from the almost the horse and buggy days. That's right. To the train, to airplanes. That's right. That's an amazing feat to see all this in one lifetime. Right. It's, and, yeah. and to be aware of it. You know, and to be a, 
sort of a part of it in experiencing it, right. you know. But I tell you what about my family. They came from the country. Some of them were not educated beyond fifth grade. But every, every single generation advanced. My daddy's brothers that he sent to school did well. But those who didn't get educated beyond fifth grade, they managed. I, Daddy had two first cousins that were the first blacks to have a SO gas station franchise in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was his first cousins. That was your daddy's My first daddy's cousin. first cousin, that's right. So, and then my, my Uncle Whitney who had the hair products, yeah. And then um, the next generation all, all went to college. Then my generation, we all went to college and grad school. My children's generation, that's my cousin's children too, not only do they have college, but they have professional degrees like doctors and lawyers, PhDs, but they have, you know, they, they were entrepreneurs, they were successful. So from the start, back on the farm where they could only go to fifth grade, each generation moved up. You call it a farm. You didn't call it no plantation. Oh no, no. <laughs> you came up a farm. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a plantation because it was, it was, it was not that big. You know, it was. But, let me tell you about Uncle Wick too. He had people working for him, who had been slaves, so they were accustomed to doing that hard work. So the the, the main farmhand who was in charge of all the workers in the field, they called him Cornbread. And he lived in a little uh, one-room house right near Uncle Wick's house. He had a bed, you know, it was just one room. So he was in charge of all the workers. You know, he'd get them up in the morning, get them out in the field and tell them what to do. But they were ex-slaves. And they, you know, Uncle Wick paid them. I'm sure it was a small amount of money. But they lived on, on his farm you know, for nothing, because, you know, he was getting work out of them, so. That's when they grew the indigo and sugar cane? And yeah, rice. right. Oh. And they always wanted slaves from the Senegal, because they already knew how to grow rice, because they grew it there, they knew how to grow, grow indigo. They always got the Senegalese slaves. So in other words, when they came and got us, they knew what we were capable of. That's right. Right. We wouldn't just know dumb. Oh, no. That, no. So they, mm -hmm. they come to get us because we, we understood. Right. And the sad thing is that when they did bring the slave uh, ships over here, they would be full of people from different countries. So they didn't speak the same language. So, you know, they, they looked like they were stupid, that they didn't understand each other's language. And of course, they didn't understand the English. So when they started talking English, you know, the, it was bad English because they were trying to listen and learn, you know. So, good God, we had a hard life. Huh? So, and also, you've seen from which we were, came, and where we are today. Now, what are your feelings and views about today? Let me tell you from whence we came. After I had learned that my great-great-grandmother was from Senegal. My husband and I went to Senegal, but also Mark, 
who's at the University of Pennsylvania, he said, Mom, I want to come, I want to come. I said, well, you just can't take off and leave from school. He said, well, let me work on it. So he went to his advisor, and he says, I have an opportunity to go to Africa. I would like independent study. I will tell you what my subject is. He wanted to study energy in Senegal, petroleum energy, you know, gas and all, mm -hmm. and solar energy, which they both had in Senegal. So his professor gave him a, uh, a permission to leave for independent study. Now he lost all those other classes, you know, he had to go an extra semester. But he, he said, I want to come. I want to go from whence we came. So he came, he hooked up with John Hope Franklin's son, no. who's an American who lived there. He studied, he went in the bush with, with John Hope Franklin's son to look at solar energy. They had started that before we did here. To look at petroleum energy, he wrote a paper that he got an A on. The professor was so impressed with me. So, Mark always figured out a way where he could make it, because another time he took time off to come with us to Paris, mm -hmm. to do, and he figured out how he could do independent study. Yeah, this was in the summertime. So he broadened himself in that way, and he figured out a way to do it, you know. He didn't lose any classes. You know, he just had to go an extra semester to make up those classes that he was losing when he went for the independent study, yeah. And he went on his own. He didn't come around with us. I mean, like we went, he went with his daddy to see the president of Senegal, who was Leopold Senghor, a classy the African man. Oh, gosh. He was a, he was a poet. He, he was fabulous. He was a, a, at first appointed. Now, Senegal is a French-speaking country. Mm -hmm. That's another reason why the people in Louisiana liked the Senegalese, because they spoke French. Now, they didn't know no German, you know, but they spoke French, which uh, the Germans had to adapt to the French uh, culture here mm -hmm. in Louisiana. My family had a good ride, you know, we and my children benefited from, from all that, you know. Yeah, but you know, you know when, you, when you, you and your husband, along with people like A.P. Turo, you know, y'all were true. Y'all were trailblazers. Yeah. Because you, know, you had to get out here and you know, and and take a stand in the uncomfortable situations. When somebody's calling you and telling you they're gonna blow your husband's brain out, you know, when Medgar Evers was shot in his driveway, I got telephone calls every night. We gonna get that nigger communist husband of yours and do call, him, call him a communist. A nigger communist, yeah. If you you are a nigger and you're a communist, you sad. <laughs> Ain't no hope for you today. No. So, you know, I was afraid. So when Dutch came home at night, because they shot Medgar Evans in his driveway, they got him in. So Dutch would pull up in the carport, he'd blow the horn four times. I'd put the light on in the carport. He'd blow the horn again in case anybody was lurking in the bushes oh, waiting for him to come out. We'd make a whole lot of noise. So he would come in. And you, you had to go through all that every day. Then, then what that's, about that's my stressful. And what about my children? They're scared to death. You know, because we, we were lying in bed. And so he said, we're going to have to do something because we can't have our children all 
psychologically cuckoo because they're scared somebody's going to shoot their daddy or maybe them. So what are we going to do? Well, what we had to do was explain to him that the daddy was a trailblazer, that this was important to do, but that you need to be very careful, always careful, play in the backyard, especially when it's getting to be dusk. But in Punch Train Park, honey, I see these, you know how it's a black custom, you better be home when the street lights go on. Oh, yeah. So when, when the street lights would go on in Punch Train Park, it, it wouldn't be dark. Boy, I'd see these kids kiting down the street, running to get home before the street lights went on, <laughs> as mine were running to get home. So I just, I just love that part of our culture, you know, things like that. You know. But that was a stressful time, though, for the oh, for family. Oh, for my was family, yeah. Like, like, you like don't my, know if your husband going to make it to the If he's going to make it home, or if they're going to shoot him, or what they're going to do, you know? So, but we felt, I mean, we, there wasn't anything we could do about it, but we also knew that that was part of what your life is. You, you don't want to do that? Well, you stay in your house, and you go to work, and you come home, you know? But if you want but, to make a difference. Yeah, you not for yourself and your children and for our people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes our people seem like they're forgotten about. That's right. The sacrifice that, and the, that it takes. No matter, it's done. It's done. It, we did it. We, we okay, you know, we okay. Dutch didn't get shot, he just died from, uh, he had a really bad asthma attack, yeah. Now he, now like we're talking about, where things are now, where our community is going, where the, our children are going, <clears throat> politics as a whole. What do you see? What's on the horizon for at 90 years of age, you don't see it all. What do you see coming for the future of your community? Tell all these young people, get educated. Get a job where you got benefits, Go to your job every day where you got benefits, you got socials, you put in social security, so when you're old and you can't work, you still have an income. Do whatever you can, carry yourself in a way that people will respect you. And whatever you can do in your own personal lives and in your professions, do it. Because that's what my children are doing. All five of them are doing something like Julie who's a physician who works for United Health, she went to black churches. She said, these people need to be tested and they need to be tested in a place where they feel safe. She told her white boss, I know what to do. So he said, well, give me your plan. So she said, she called like five churches down in the lower nine, down in the upper ninth ward, and a couple of Churches uptown, she just called us Dr. Julie Morial. Well, as soon as she said her name, they said, okay, what you, what you want? So she said, well, I belong, I, you know, I work for this company and I can arrange for my staff to come in and test any of your people that want to come, test them for COVID. Come on, we got a big church hall. She did that in these five churches, had a whole lot of people that came. You know, she had it all, you know, set up where the people would have a test to give them the result within a reasonable time. And so her boy said, well, how you did that? She said, well, I, I, I knew what to do. 
I knew where the people are. I knew where the people who weren't vaccinated were. So that's what she's do she does. Uh, she says that there are more infant deaths here because of poor, pre poor prenatal care for black mothers and all that, so she's addressing that. Jacques, who's a little man, he says, I, I don't mind being a little man physically, I ain't little up here. <laughs> he, is, he knows how to maneuver in the political world, how to get stuff done. And in his own little quiet way, they, they'll say Jacques Morial, watch out for him, he knows what to do. In the neighborhood, he lives in Treme. The house, I don't know if y'all saw the series Treme on television a few years ago. What they did is they bought a house in Treme, did it over, painted it, fixed it all inside, put beautiful flowers and so forth, and he used that for the, for, for the series. To, to shoot, you know, that was part of. So Jacques always wanted to live in Treme because he, he, he's, a, he's a historian, you know, he, he, he would be reading encyclopedia in the bed at night when he was a little boy, you know. He's reading encyclopedia. He's really smart, he's really smart. But he also knows how to get things done. So he, uh, he knows the lady who owned that house. She owned several other houses in the neighborhood. It's a modest neighborhood, you know, it's all, he's on Durban near Claiborne, yeah. He was talking to the lady and she said, you know the house that Treme used, uh, you want to live in this neighborhood? Jack said, yeah, well, that's why I came to you. She said, well, I'll, I'll rent it to you with an option to buy. He pounced on it. It's a really nice, old, you know, been redone. He's got a nice garden. Um, he rented, like, I think, like for, uh, for a, a year and a half, then, then he bought it. They love him. You know why? Because he gets the streets fixed. They, it's, it's, oh, he gets things he done. Gets, uh, he knows how to get things done. Yeah, uh, they call him the mayor, the mayor of Tremaine. Well, you get like that from his dad and his brothers. Yeah, so he, so, but in, in his own quiet way. And then um, Monique is a judge, the youngest one. She's a judge in the first city court, so she gets a lot of eviction cases. Sometimes it's white landlords and they're evicting black people. So she was in her own little proper way. She said, well, you want to evict these people? Well, could you get out of, a get out of your house in three or four days, get all your furniture out and everything? Could you do that? You know, you got a truck, you got means. And they're stunned, they don't say anything. I mean, the judge telling me, you know, could you do that? Why are you asking these poor people to do it? So in her own way, professionally, she's, she's getting the message out. Yeah, mm -hmm. But she belongs to another organization that does stuff. Now, Cherie does some stuff too, you she, know. She worked with the bank. Yeah, she worked for a bank, she worked for the aquarium, she worked for Our Lady of the Lake Hospital, now she's working for Entergy. And I remember after I Ida, got too many jobs now. I, this was one behind the other, not no, all together. Okay, yeah, this was that. you know succession. But after Ida, they sent her to neighborhoods that were devastated by Ida. They sent her to especially black neighborhoods. She knew what to do, what to tell them, you know. So that she she felt that was important for her to go to the neighborhood where her people were. Yeah. So there. 
I'm proud that in their personal lives and in their, in their profession that they think they, they must do that because they were fortunate enough to be exposed to know what to do. That's got to be a wonderful feeling as a mother it to is. see I'm your so, children. I'm so proud not of just, as I said, Not just survive, but to thrive. That's right, and to help others. To help others. Mm, they know that. You know, she, I don't, she read kind of quiet. Mm -hmm. Oh, but she gets stuff done. <laughs> she mm -hmm. quiet. Now, you know, she was also at the aquarium when they established Lundegras. You know, at Lundegras, they have the big, I don't you know, y'all and I are from which y'all don't know. They have a big, we call it a bazaar, big party on the riverfront between the aquarium and Esplanade with bands, you know, black bands and all that. But she was working for the aquarium when they put that together because she had contact with the Zulu club. It's the Zulus. Oh, right yeah, there. so she, she through our family, she knew people at the Zulu club, so they trusted her, you know. So the, the more you have found how to get things done. That's right. So, you know, I'm just so proud that, you know, even though sometimes the life was hard because, you know, people, like during the police strike, honey, they, they had a bomb threat at the elementary school where my two girls were. They called the principal's office. They said, we got a bomb in the hallway where those niggas worry our children are. So the principal of the school called, she was scared to death. She said, well, I don't know what to do. I said, well, give me a minute. Let me see what we need to do. So I didn't call Dutch, because Dutch was dealing with the police strike, and it was very stressful. You know, he was, I called his security guy. And I said, look, we got a problem here. Tell me what to do. They got a bomb threat at Cherie and Monique's school. Tell me what to tell the principal to do. He said, okay, I'm gonna send an unmarked car there. Tell your children to go home with their carpool, because my friend used to pick them up to go home from school. Tell them, go home with their carpool, so they won't spot them, me picking them up, you know. We don't know what they would do to them. So they sent the unmarked car, the principal was scared out of her mind. And so it worked out fine. You know, they went home with their carpool. Uh, the unmarked police car was there, ready to call out the whole force, you know. They all knew, you know, and they had the bomb people come in to, to sniff, they brought the dogs in to sniff for the, for the bomb right after the children left. They didn't want to go in there and alarm them, you know. So that's what, you know, my children had to go through, stuff like that. And the principal was scared to death. You know, well, I'm scared to death too. You know, one, and one, They're gonna blow up all the, all the children and get my children. Yeah, and on one side, people looking and thinking, how privileged your children mm -hmm. are, how they got it made, mm -hmm. but not realizing the, the danger in the... No, they were privileged country. in one sense, but they were balanced off with, you know, what they had to go through because they, they were Dutch Morial's children. But they're strong kids. Oh, you, they uh, got a lot of race pride. Yeah, they're good. Yeah, so you, you put that in your children. Well, they had to, they had to survive, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. that, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of them. I'm proud of what they do. You know, I'm proud that Julie steps out, you know, and, and, and her, her boss sometimes doesn't agree, you know. She said, well, this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. In a nice way, you know, they yeah. all got class.
man can shackle the hand, the man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.